Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Okay, so this evening we're going to begin the book of Hebrews and do a study in the book of Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews is not a really long book, but if you've ever tried to read it, there's a lot in Hebrews. And um, so I don't really know how long the study is going to go. Uh, we'll see. I, I know how many sections we have it divided into and things like that. Uh, I know there's a, a lot of details in the book of Hebrews that I might be sk- skipping over and some details we'll spend more, more time with. Uh, if you have a Bible and you know how to do Bible study that has uh, marginal notes, cross-references, things like that, you're going to find in the book of Hebrews hundreds of references to the Old Testament. And if you want to study in more depth, it would definitely behoove you to look those places up and read those places and uh, come to an understanding of that because just the very name of the book, the epistle to the Hebrews, tells you that it's written to Jews. It's written to Jewish Christians in the first century. So there are many things in the book that um, is just assumed that you're going to understand and you won't, well, you won't understand the New Testament very well at all if you don't understand the Old Testament, if you don't put your heart into understanding the Old Testament also. But definitely the book of Hebrews will have references to things that you have no idea what they're talking about if you don't read and focus on the Old Testament. But what I don't want to do is um, lose the... That uh, just keeps whistling, doesn't it? And we don't have a sound person, so I don't know. I might have to change mics, but we'll see. Uh, what I don't want to do is to lose the, uh, you know, the trees, the, the forest for the trees. I don't want to get too lost in the details that we don't hear the message of the book. Because I believe that the message of the book of, of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, is a message uh, that's uh, highly appropriate to, to us today and has a, a, a great deal of blessing for us in the world that we live in. Any idea why that's whistling like that? Okay, well, okay, maybe John does. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's something about how I've got this microphone on. I have no idea. Is that any better? Okay. Anyway, let me move back a little bit. Maybe that'll help. Okay. Well, we're not whistling now. That's good. Okay, so open up the book of Hebrews um, and look at your notes, please, that I've, that I've given to you. Um, if you look at those notes, I'm going to step down here, um, then you will see on the back of those notes, at the very end, it has an outline of Hebrews, okay? Well, we're not even going to get to Roman numeral one today. I'm just going to give you an introduction to the book today. Um, but as you look through that outline, you'll see the titles all include the word superior or supreme. Christ's superior revelation, Christ's superiority over angels, Christ's superiority over Moses, Christ's superiority over the priests of the Aaronic priesthood of Aaron, Christ's superior sacrifice, Christ the supreme goal of all Old Testament heroes of faith, uh, 
and Christ's supreme call to all people of faith. And that's really what the book is about. And as we go through the introduction today, I really hope and I really pray that you'll be able to see yourself in the position of the Hebrew Christians that were receiving this letter that was being written to them and be able to understand how close their situation was, how much their situation parallels our situation as modern Christians today, and how important the message is that was given to them. But the overall message that's being given to them is that what you have is better than anything. That Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to the priesthood. Christ is superior you know, to angels. And some of the things that are being told to them that Christ is superior to these things, they may not seem like as big a deal to you because you're not Jewish. You're not Orthodox Jewish, right? But if you can put yourself into the culture that they're in, in their mind and in their understanding, and in reality, Moses was superior to any religious leader that had ever existed. You understand? You know, the angels of God are superior. The priesthood of Aaron was superior to any religion that existed then or exists now. And so the point of it is that what you have is better than the best that God has ever given to anyone. So don't fall back away from it. Don't shy away from it. Don't be ashamed of it. Because if you fall away or you even shy away, you will begin to lose the best thing that you could ever have, which is Jesus Christ. And that is what was happening with the Hebrew Christians, just as it's happening in the world that we live in today. So I want to begin with this introduction. And the first thing I want to talk about is to whom the book is written. Okay, Because it actually doesn't specifically tell us to whom the letter is written. It just starts out at the beginning. And most of Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters, tell us to whom that letter was written, and it tells us uh, by whom it was written. And any letter we would write today is going to be addressed to somebody so they know this is my letter, and it's going to be signed by somebody so they know uh, who wrote that letter. But Hebrews is different in, in that aspect. And so we have to do a little bit of study to understand to whom it was written. Of course, it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's called that because traditionally the church has always understood that this letter was written to Hebrew Christians, just as James is written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. It was written first and foremost to Jewish Christians, and so uh, with the book of Hebrews. So it's not specifically stated in the book, but there is a good deal of internal evidence in the book, and there is a great deal of church tradition that shows it was written to Jewish Christians. It's most likely that these Christians lived in Rome. It's most likely that it was written to the Jewish Christian community in Rome, or we might say the Christian community in Rome, just at the time that it was written, that community was pr predominantly Jewish, okay, in, in Rome. It was written in a time when the Apostle Paul had not been to Rome yet. It's written uh, not not earlier than uh, certain other books, but just because it's toward the end of the New Testament doesn't mean it was one of the last books written, and we'll talk about when it was written also. So in chapter 13 and verse 24 of Hebrews, we read these lines, those from Italy greet you. 
those from Italy greet you. When we read Italy, it's not talking about the modern country of Italy as we understand Italy today. In the ancient world, if they say Italy, they mean Rome. Those from Rome greet you. So that could be understood in one of two ways. It could be understood that this letter was written from Rome to Jewish Christians living outside of Rome, which would be primarily focused then on Jerusalem because there are two main centers of Jewish Christians at this time, and that would be in Rome and that would be in Jerusalem. Or it could mean that it was written to the Jewish Christians who live in Rome and some of their own were with the writer and they're passing greetings back from you know, wherever the writing, this is being written from to their home church back home. Does that, does that make sense to you? Okay. So it could be understood in either one of these ways, but we, we need to, I believe, understand that it was being written to them in Rome, and I can give you a couple of other reasons why. So look with me at chapter 12 and verse 4. Chapter 12 and verse 4. And, I, and I'm telling this all to you not just because it's some in, interesting information, but because I really want you to be able to put yourself in their shoes, to understand what this message has to do with your life today, how practical it is for you today. In chapter 12, verse 4, we read this statement. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Do you understand that? And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to his sons. And then it goes on from there, and we're going to teach on that, that later. But the point here is that who, whoever was receiving this letter was being persecuted, but the persecution that they were going through is what I'm going to call for these lessons a passive persecution. Okay? It may not be the most accurate term, but I just tried to think of something to describe it. But a passive persecution. And I'm going to compare that to an active persecution, an active persecution meaning that Christians are actually being imprisoned, arrested, beaten, killed. You know, they're physically suffering uh, because of their faith. A passive persecution is exactly what we live in in the United States of America today, where all of our culture and all of our society around us persecutes a person who truly, not, not who calls himself a Christian, that would be okay, but who truly stands for the truth and proclaims that truth boldly and lives a real Christian life out loud. They're going to be persecuted. They might lose their job. They might get fired from the school if they're a teacher, right? Uh, they might get kicked out from being the pastor because they shouldn't be preaching that way. You know, I mean, there's, there's a thousand ways that Christians are persecuted in the United States of America today, but except for maybe some really rare cases, nobody has resisted to the point of shedding blood yet, right? That may come, it may not come, but that's the situation that they are in. Well, the Roman Christians at the time of this writing had actually not resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. This is before Nero. When Nero comes, then we see the shedding of blood amongst Christians in Rome and all around the world. But at this time, they had not resisted to the point of the shedding of blood, although they were being persecuted. The Jerusalem Christians, on the other hand, were already resisting to the point of shedding of blood and being put in prison, as were Jews in many other cities uh, around the Roman Empire. So that gives us a clue that this is being written to the Jewish Christians in 
Rome. And then probably an even better clue that also reveals to us their situation is found in chapter 10 of Hebrews and in verse 32. This is what we call internal evidence. Okay, It's evidence inside of the letter that tell us things about the letter that are not plainly stated. So in chapter 10, verse 32, it says, but remember the former days, and this also gives us a clue as to when the letter was written. I'll get to that in a minute. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, so in other words, after you got saved, it's probably how we would say today, you were already good Jews. You already were waiting for the Messiah. But in those days when you received Jesus as the Messiah, when you were enlightened that Jesus is the Christ, after, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, but not to the point of shedding of blood, right? Because that's said later. Partly, and this is the kind of persecution they were going through, and, and is this not the same today in America? Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So you were made fun of publicly, you were made a laughingstock public, publicly. The pressure is on, it's a passive persecution, but it's a very real pressure to stop being so vocal and so out loud about your Christianity. To just keep it all inside of you and just maybe go to church on Sunday or maybe not go to church on Sunday. But don't be an honest, uh, truth-telling, real Christian. Because you're going to, the, the pressure of the society is more than just peer pressure you had in high school or something. It's, it's such a pressure that you're made a public laughingstock. And that there are many Christian leaders who are put out there and made fun of, and you join sides together with them. So, so the writer of Hebrews is saying that you were not ashamed of these other Christian leaders like Paul and others, and maybe Paul wrote Hebrews, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you were not ashamed of these people, but you joined together with them in the beginning. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accept, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Some of them lost property. They weren't, put, they weren't, they weren't to the point of shedding of blood, but something had happened where they had been removed from their property, Okay. And that could happen today. And he says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So let me give you a little bit of history that equates to what we just read. In, 49, in AD 49 or AD 50, there is a significant amount of historical evidence that's not just church fathers, but Roman historical evidence. And so much so that we know that this, this happened. In AD 49 or AD 50, there were, there were no, as the Bible would say, no small disturbances in Rome, okay? And these disturbances, this public unrest, these riots, these protests were being egged on by the Jews, but not the Jewish Christians, but the more Pharisaical Jews who were very upset that their synagogue, was, their synagogues in mass because it was in mass, there was revival going on in Rome, were receiving Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't stop being Jews. Paul never stopped being a Jew. As far as we understand from the scripture, Paul continued 
to follow the dietary laws, but he did not impose them on the Gentiles. He himself was circumcised, and he circumcised Timothy, but he did not circumcise Titus. He did not impose those things on others. But he didn't stop being a good Jew just because he was a Christian. In fact, he became a real Jew now. He had Jesus as his Messiah. And so they never stopped being Jews, and they didn't stop going to synagogue. If you'll read carefully in the book of Acts, they go to the temple on Saturday. And then they also gather on Sunday. They don't stop being Jews. They just become fulfilled Jews who have received Jesus as, as their Messiah. But these Jewish leaders, the Pharisaical type, they were very upset about this. And historically, we know that they egged on a great deal of riots and disturbances in the city of Rome against Jesus the Messiah. Their whole thing was, you know, kind of a Jewish lives matter type thing. We don't want our synagogues being, I mean, I'm sorry, but it was like that. We don't want our synagogues being shut down and, and all this kind of stuff. And you also have to understand that the Jews enjoyed certain privileges in the Roman Empire that other religions did not have, okay? Their children did not uh, have to serve in the Roman army during certain periods. They could not be conscripted. They didn't have to pay certain taxes. They did not have to do the emperor worship thing that uh, everybody was required of uh, to, to do. And uh, their religion was very highly respected. You, you need to understand that, that Judaism was very highly respected in Rome. And these were mostly wealthy people who owned a good deal of, of property. But because of these disturbances and because of these riots, the emperor who was Claudius uh, at the time, he banished all the Jews from Rome, okay? He didn't make a difference between the ones causing the riots and the ones who were Christians now and accepted Jesus. He didn't care. He just knew these Jews and that Jesus, they're causing trouble for Rome. And he banished all the Jews from Rome and they actually, at least temporarily, lost their property. Exactly like what's written here in Hebrews. And that's what's being said to them. These Jewish Christians who live in Rome. Do you remember the days? Because this is some years after that happened, and they were allowed to return after a while. But do you remember the days when you were driven from your homes because of Jesus? When you lost your jobs because of Jesus? When you were forced to leave Rome because of Jesus? And how you accepted that with joy. You accepted that with gladness. And you weren't afraid for the future. You just trusted in Jesus. Because they didn't know on the day they got banished they were ever going to get to come back. They didn't know what was going to happen to them further, but they kept following Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews, and we'll teach out of chapter 10 later, is drawing their attention to remember your first love, what it used to be like in the beginning. And now you're beginning to fall away when the persecution is much more passive than it even was back then. And you were ready to stick it through and fight through for Jesus and stand for Jesus back then when you were a teenager or whatever it was, you know, and today you're so afraid because you've got this mortgage and you've got that and this and that, and you might lose your job and then what's going to happen? And Satan's got you afraid and you're compromising your Christian faith. So that's really what the entire book is, is about. The entire letter is about. The letter is written in a systematic form that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. And it's just argument after argument that leads us up to the crescendo to the final arguments that, that come at the, at the the end of the book. But everything that's being say, said is basically what I just said to you now. So now let's talk about when the book was written, okay? 
So one obvious fact is this letter was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD. We know that because in the letter, the writer is talking about the temple and the temple service and comparing uh, Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to that of the temple service. And he's not talking about something that used to be. He's talking about something that is right now. So the letter was written before A.D. 70 because in A.D. 70, uh, the temple and the city were destroyed. And so it was written before that time. We also know that it was written before A.D. 64. Before A.D. 64. Because in A.D. 64, Nero began his persecution of Christians in Rome. So it would not be said you have not resisted to the point of shedding of blood. Because beginning in AD 64, they were shedding blood. They were, were, were dying for Jesus. And so one thing that I love about this letter, and I believe it's really worthy of our attention, is we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to be next year. And I'm not predicting that we're going to have that kind of persecution or some kind of Nero or something like that. But we don't know that. We don't know. And they didn't know then. And sometimes it's hard for us to associate ourselves with people that lived in the past because we have 20-20 vision when we look behind ourselves and we see the whole story. But remember, these people lived in the absolute most prosperous city in the world. Okay, These people lived at the height of the Roman Empire. They you know, were, compared to the rest of the world around them, more of a superpower than the United States has ever been. Okay. This was the superpower. This was the greatest culture. This was the greatest literature. It was the greatest of everything. And they lived there in Rome, in the city of Rome. And, that, and living in the city of Rome, by the way, means that you are a Roman citizen. And you know from reading Acts how important that was to be a Roman citizen. And they were very privileged Roman citizens. And most of them were wealthy Roman citizens. Okay, But the Holy Spirit knew what was coming and knew that they were not ready for what was coming. And the letter of Hebrews to the Hebrews is written that they would be prepared for what is, is coming in the very near days. So we know that it was written before A.D. 64. We know that it was written after Acts chapter 15, because the questions of Acts chapter 15 about circumcision and uh, dietary things and those things that were settled in Acts 15, if you go back and read that, uh, they're not questions anymore in, in this book. So that it was written after Acts chapter 15. These Jewish Christians were being passively persecuted at this time. Okay? And it wasn't as bad as it had been before when they were kicked out of Rome. But they were being ostracized, they were being rejected, and there was a great deal of pressure on them. And the pressure was that they would revert back to the formalities of Judaism and stop, if it's, so, if it's just such a little thing, but that they would stop gathering publicly with other Christians and being Christians out loud. Okay, Hebrews 10.25, that we've read a thousand times, and we'll get to it later, that you would not forsake the assembling of yourselves together is written in this context. So try to imagine that say five or six years ago, all the Jews are banished from Rome completely, 
because of unrest between the Jewish establishment and the Christians, Christian Jews. And now they've been allowed to come back under certain conditions if they will keep the peace. And so, but the pressure hasn't gone away. The opinion of the Jewish leaders has not changed. The opinion of the Roman emperor has not changed. You have to toe the party line. You have to speak the proper narrative. It doesn't matter what you believe in your private life. Nobody cares. But what matters is that you don't live that out loud. That in front of everybody else, that you just be exactly the same as everybody else. And there's a great deal of pressure on them. And then you also need to understand that for the Jews, it would be somewhat like akin to the Amish today, or perhaps the Mormons today, that their entire, uh, their entire economy and the possibility to have jobs and work together and buy and sell was very tied in to their family culture, to their, the culture of Judaism. And so if you're ostracized from the Jews, then I don't know, it'd, it'd be like you had the a big ice cream store in Salt Lake City and you got kicked out of the Mormons or something. And I'm not trying to say anything about Mormons. I'm just saying you understand that picture, right? They, they, they wouldn't have the possibility to make the connections with the banks, to get the credit they needed, to do the things they needed. These people lived exactly like we live today, okay? They had the same things. And for them to be ostracized or kicked out, it was a huge deal. Okay, so you're going to church, on Sundays, you're going to synagogue on Saturdays, you're good Jews, but you love Jesus and you've received Jesus as your Messiah. If you know anything about what's happening in Israel today, this exact same thing is happening today when Orthodox Jews receive Jesus as their Messiah. They will be ostracized completely. It's a huge sacrifice, but it's really no different for us today in America. And the temptation to them was to compromise on everything, okay? And the big compromise, which it's a huge deal in Hebrews, but it seems like not a big deal to our culture today, was to stop going to church, okay? Because just stop associating with that Sunday thing that they're doing. Stop going to that home group with those Christians, you know, or whatever. You can still go to synagogue, and you can still believe that Jesus is your Messiah. Just don't tell anybody that, right? You're not going to go to hell. You'll get to go to heaven, but, you know, at least that's what you think. But you can't be this... this you know, in color living Christian in front of everybody else, okay? So that's why that's written in chapter 10, uh, verse 25. Well, in AD 58, we're still talking about when this was written. In AD 58, okay, so we've got AD 64, the persecutions of Nero begin. Uh, we've got AD 58, so six years before that. The Apostle Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. We've read about that in the book of Acts. And for two years, he's held in prison, or he's held under guard. It wasn't really a prison, but more sort of a jail-type thing where he had a lot of freedom. But he was held under arrest for two years in Caesarea, which is not far from Jerusalem. We went through Acts. We talked about this. So for two years, he's held in Caesarea. And then he was transported to Rome... That's the whole shipwreck story in the book of Acts. He's transported to Rome two years after he was arrested, so somewhere around A.D. 60, A.D. 61 in, in that time period. And here's another thing, A.D. 62. And you, you need to understand these facts. A.D. 62, about the time that Paul is imprisoned in Rome, something else is happening in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, James 
who's the brother of Jesus, and people understand that differently depending on if you're Catholic, Protestant, a lot of different things, but, but honestly, the Greek could mean he's the cousin of Jesus, the first cousin of Jesus. It could mean he's the birth brother of Jesus, you know, biological. It could mean he's the half-brother of Jesus, and history doesn't really tell us exactly, but the Bible says he's the brother of Jesus. That's all that matters, okay? So James, the brother of Jesus, he's the one who wrote the epistle of James, okay? And in Acts chapter 15, we see that he is what we would, you know, if we were Catholic, we would say he was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. He, we'd probably say he's the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Whatever you want to call him, he's the guy in charge of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and even Peter listens to him. He's the one that makes the final decision. Okay? So a very important Christian leader, probably the most important Christian leader in the world if you're a Jewish Christian, more so than Paul, because remember, Paul was kind of an outcast, you know, but, but James was very highly respected in Jerusalem. Well, a high priest, uh, a high priest um, at, at that time, uh, whose, whose name is Ananus, and Ananus is the son of Annas, and Annas is the one who uh, prosecuted Jesus to have him crucified, okay? So that high priest with Jesus, his son, Ananus, has James put to death. Only now he doesn't need Rome to do it because Rome isn't interested in these affairs anymore. Rome just wants peace, okay? There are big things stirring in Jerusalem at this time. In eight years, remember what was eight years ago? That was 2015. That wasn't that long ago, was it? If you're not over in that youth group. But eight years ago, right? In eight years, their entire city is going to be destroyed. Their temple is going to be destroyed. They will be kicked out of Jerusalem, and they will never have a government in Jerusalem again until 1948, and really in Jerusalem until 1967. Think about that. Big things are stirring. And the, why did that happen? You know, well, there's a lot of reasons why it happened spiritually, but why did it happen politically? Because they wouldn't shut up, and Rome got sick of all the trouble the Jews were causing in Jerusalem and came down and just wiped them out and said they were done with them. So there are big things happening in Jerusalem at this time. So James is taken by Ananus. He has him arrested. He has him tried before the Sanhedrin, exactly like Jesus. And then he takes him up to what's called the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, Remember the pinnacle of the temple? That's where Jesus stood and Satan tempted him there and said, cast yourself down from here. Well, that story was already widely known because that was the gospel of Jesus. Ananus, on purpose, takes James to this same spot and they push him off the pinnacle of the temple. He crashes to the ground. Nobody knows if he died at that moment or what, but then on top of that, they stone him to death. And if you've ever studied what a stoning was really like, this is a gruesome thing. It's not just throwing some rocks at a person. And then on top of that, to make sure everything's done, they behead him. Okay? That's what happened to James, the brother of Jesus. Why am I telling you that? Not only for the interesting historical facts, but so you can understand the period that these Christians who got this letter are living in. Okay? This, this, this feeling that we need to compromise a little bit and tone it down a little bit was very real for them. In fact, so real that I think you could understand it. 
And if I wrote that letter, maybe I would tone it, the letter down a little bit and say, I kind of understand why you feel like you need to stop going to church on Sundays. This is a really tense period of time, and maybe you should just put a little mask on and do what they tell you to do or something. You know, I don't know. You know, just, just try to feel a little bit of sympathy and compassion for these Hebrew Christians. But that's not how the letter is written. It's not written without compassion, but it's written with a very strong understanding that if you keep compromising like this, you will lose the best thing you've ever had. It's like a husband and wife who really honestly love each other, but they never spend time with each other. They completely ignore one another. They compromise on everything. You know, they're not going to just keep feeling love for each other for years to come. They'll come a day when they'll lose their marriage, right? Because they don't keep that fire alive. And that's what Hebrews is saying, is you need to come back to your first love. It doesn't matter if you die for your faith, because eternity is the only thing that matters. It's not how much property you have or what job you have on this earth. You can trust God. If you'll seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. So that's the period of time that this book was written. We don't know the exact date, of course. They didn't write dates on these things, and they would have dated it different than we do today. But it's written in this period between A.D. 58, after the arrest of Paul, and A.D. 63, before the persecutions that... Uh, began with Nero. One other thing I want to say about this period of time. The rejection of Jesus, and you can see this in the things I've just told you, as Messiah, by the Jews, the Jewish leaders I'm talking about, the, the people Jesus called the Jews, or they're called the Jews in, in the gospel. But the rejection of Jesus as Messiah at this period of time was systematic. It was methodical. It was radical, and it was powerful. It was not something that they could easily overcome because the Jews had political power at this period of time. After 70 AD, they didn't anymore, but they did still at this time. Okay, And so the persecution was very real for them. It was a very difficult situation uh, that, 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 that they were in. If you had been a Jewish Christian at that time living in Rome and you had got, that this letter is addressed to, I promise you, this is what you would have thought. Well, we've got that Jewish Christian who's a Pharisee of Pharisees that always wants to preach to Gentiles, named Paul, on the one side, he's sitting in prison. They're probably going to kill him. Then we've got James, who's actually the brother of Jesus. Jesus didn't help him. He's dead and died in this gruesome, terrible way. You know, what's going to happen to us? It would have seemed to you at that moment in time that Judaism was on the rise, that Christianity was a failed project, <laughs> and that there was every reason in the world to abandon ship. <laughs> and even if you still believed in Jesus as Messiah, that maybe you should just calm down a little bit and start being more Jewish again, so you don't have all the trouble that you're going to have. That's why, that's the atmosphere that the letter was written in. And then the next thing I want to talk about is by whom the letter was written. And that's probably the biggest historical question. So I'll just go through this real quick. Uh, traditionally, the, in the church, it's been said by many scholars and many leaders that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews because there are many things in Hebrews that sound like Paul wrote them, and because it's a master of teaching. It's a very 
uh, uh, deep doctrinal book. Okay? It sounds like Paul would have written it. But today, most modern scholars, and I'm talking about since the time of the, of the Reformation, so over the past hundreds of years, uh, have rejected this idea for a lot of reasons. Number one, internal reasons. Number one, there are stylistic differences. The way the book is written, even if you read it in English, but especially if you look at it in Greek, it is not the style of Paul. There are things that are close to the style of Paul, but they're not really Paul's style. They're much closer to Luke's style. And so some uh, scholars think that perhaps Luke wrote this book. Uh, perhaps it was written by Paul and Luke together during the time that Paul was in prison in Caesarea. That's actually a possibility. And I'm telling you right now, I don't know who wrote the book, okay? But I'm giving you some, some possibilities. But I have a theory. I like my theory the best because it's my theory. But it, it doesn't, you know, just because it really works for the book. But it could have been written by Paul and Luke together. You remember that Paul didn't actually write. He, he knew how to write uh, because he would sign his books and he would use his own hand at time. But he was not a professional writer. And back then, if you wanted to write something, you had to be a pro because it was a lot of work. And so it was Paul and Silas, and Silas would write for him, right? Well, it could have been Paul and Luke that wrote the book together, okay? Um, however, there's, there is internal evidence that's very strong as to why we, we should not accept Paul as being the writer of, of Hebrews, uh, which isn't a downer. It actually makes this really interesting. And I'm going to give you just a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us. It doesn't say confirmed to you. It says confirmed to us by those who heard. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm a second generation Christian, you might, you might say. I heard the gospel from those disciples that walked with Jesus. I received the gospel from the disciples. The disciples are first generation, and they came and they taught us. They evangelized us. They revealed the gospel to us. Okay? But if we go over to Galatians chapter 1, this is where Paul says it the strongest, but he does allude to it in other places. If we go to Galatians chapter 1, and we look at verse 15, verse 15 uh, after talking about his manner of life in Judaism before that, in verse 15 it says, but when, in Galatians 1.15, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And only three years later did I go up to Jerusalem. And then I just talked to Peter and I was only there for 15 days. Paul's big argument is those apostles never preached the gospel to me. In fact, I rejected everything that they were doing. I was killing Stephen. And on the road to Damascus, I received the gospel first generation directly from Jesus Christ. And the revelation that I have, I received directly from the Holy Spirit while I was out in the desert for three years. Okay? Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, always. But he never says, I'm second generation apostle. 
He's always seen and sees himself as first generation because I received this directly from Jesus. And there are no other apostles. There are none like that today. None could ever be like that again. But Paul is amongst those also. And so that is a little bit of internal evidence in Hebrews that tells us Paul did not write this book. So who did write the book? Well, here's some possibilities. One, Clement of Alexandria, who is a great church father. Okay, look these people up online if you want to. He, in approximately A.D. 200, so not long after this, he said that this book was written most likely by Clement of Rome. You can look him up online also. And he was a great church father that lived at the end of the first century. One Tertullian, who's a great church historian, wrote that he believed this church was written, that this book was written by Barnabas. And Martin Luther believed that the epistle to the Hebrews was written by Apollos. You remember Apollos in the book of Acts? Okay. So there are many possibilities. But let me give you my favorite theory. Okay. My favorite theory is Priscilla and Aquila. And I'm going to tell you why. And if Priscilla and Aquila wrote this book, it fits perfect. And what a beauty that a woman wrote one of the books of the New Testament. Okay. I'm not saying she did. I don't know. We don't know for sure who wrote the book. But talking about them for a few minutes will give us an insight into the world of the Roman Hebrew Christians because that's who they are. This is their world, Priscilla and Aquila. Look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 and, and verse 1. You probably know these stories and we've been through the book of Acts, but let's look at 18 verse 1. It says, after these things, he left Athens, that's Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, who is a native of Pontus, okay? But he recently came from Italy, that means Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's exactly what we were just talking about, Okay? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, so Aquila and Priscilla, who are Roman Jewish Christians, have been kicked out of Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And by the way, they're already Christians. It doesn't say anything about Paul leading them to the Lord. Okay, It's just a given that they are Christians. He finds them. And it says they have the same trade. He stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So we don't know how long of a period of time this was, but they didn't have jet airplanes back then. Okay, So we're going to give it a few months because it says they set up shop and they had a tent making shop. And all week long, they're making tents. And a lot of people say, oh, Paul had to make tents to support himself in ministry. Well, that's a whole different subject, but it really doesn't say that. He's using making tents as a way to reach people and as a way to fellowship with Priscilla and Aquila. And whatever was going on in there at that time, Priscilla and Aquila had the most amazing Bible school going on for sure. Because I've never made tents, but I've watched women and, and men mostly it's women of late, and, uh, but you know it takes a pretty strong hand to punch through leather, right? So you had men and women. But if you ever watch people sewing, you got a lot of time to talk. You got a lot of, your hands are busy, 
but your minds and your conversation can go on in that sewing time. And I just imagine that this was just the most amazing Bible school for Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul had such an amazing fellowship with them. And Paul learned from them what it was like to be a Christian in Rome. And if you go over to Romans, which I'm not going to do right now, and you read Romans, in the very beginning, Paul's saying, I've never got to go to Rome yet. Paul hasn't gotten there yet. But basically he's saying, but I've been dreaming for years of coming. I want to have some fruit amongst you. I want to be in Rome with you. I want to see the church in Rome because it's an amazing and beautiful thing that God's doing in Rome. Well, he learned about that from Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila learned much from him during this time. And when Timothy and Silas came, then he began to stop the tent making and spend more time in the full, full-time ministry because now Timothy and Silas were there uh, to help him. So if you go over to Romans chapter 16... Romans chapter 16, the clock is right, yep. If you go to Romans chapter 16, and uh, I'm just going to read a few of these verses here. In verse 3, Romans 16, verse 3, it says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. That's Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, so in Acts, they're not in Rome. And if they wrote Hebrews, we don't know. But if they did, when they wrote it, they weren't in Rome. But by Romans chapter 16, verse 3, they're already back in Rome, okay, which would have been totally normal for these people in ministry. This is what they do, is move around, and the doors were open for them to go back to Rome. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So at the end of Romans, they're already in Rome as leaders of the Christian church in Rome. And apparently, they were wealthy enough that they were able to gather the church into their own home. And they were back on their own property in Rome at that time. Notice how important they are to Paul's ministry. He doesn't, you, you won't find another woman, another husband and wife team, if you put the team together, that Paul talks about like he does about Priscilla and Aquila. Notice also the order of the names that in Acts, it says Aquila and Priscilla at the beginning, because that's the proper order of names. Okay, don't get offended, women, but somewhat proper today, probably. I don't know. But when I was a kid, we'd get letters in the mail, and they'd be addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Frank Webster. And I remember being a kid, but that ain't, that ain't my mom's name. Why does it say Mrs. Frank Webster? What does that mean? Or there could even be a letter just to her that said Mrs. Frank Webster. And I remember thinking, that, that's kind of strange, you know. Her name's Nan. It's not Frank. You know, but there was a, an order of naming these names. So if we go back 2,000 years, of course, Aquila was to be named first. He is the husband. But in the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, in several places, you see Priscilla's name first. And that doesn't mean that they had this kind of marriage where he was this kind of milksoppy kind of Ahab and she was a Jezebel that was kicking him around all the time. It just means that they had different giftings, okay? And it's perhaps possible, we don't know, but we know that Priscilla was an amazing teacher, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But it's very possible that he was a very pastoral, administrative person, and she was the real teacher, okay? That there's nothing wrong with that. God has different gifts and different talents with different people, okay? But they work together. The beauty is that they work together as a team. And they didn't have this competition or this fight over who's going to go and preach today or whatever's going on. They were a team. And such a team that Paul says they, 
put their necks on the line for me. They laid down their lives for me. If it weren't for them, I would be dead today. We don't know what happened. But we know they were very important uh, to his ministry, though he did not lead them to Christ himself. Then look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And in verse 18, it says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Again, her name's written first now. In Kincaria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. They come to Ephesus, and he left them there. Okay, So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them, saying, blah, 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 it goes on, it goes on. And then it says in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. If it says that, that means this guy knew the Bible like Paul knew the Bible. Alexandria would be like he had a Harvard ed- education or whatever, MIT or something, I don't know. But he, ha- he was a highly educated man, okay? And it says here that he, knew, he was mighty in scriptures. And it says that he was an eloquent man. Eloquent means he was a great orator. And up until the most recent of times, classical education always included oratory. And a great orator was the mark of someone who had a high education, okay? So these things are written to us about Apollos, all right? But notice what it says. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he knew Jesus. He was fervent in the Spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila, again her name written first, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila were so filled with the Holy Spirit, and not just filled with the Holy Spirit, but so highly educated in the Scripture that they were able to take this Harvard doctor of whatever, sit down with him, and show him according to the Scripture what was a more accurate understanding than just only the baptism of repentance, but that this moves on into the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what God is doing today in the earth. And Apollos listened to them, okay? So it's very possible that they were of a level of education and skill that they could have written the book of Hebrews. Whether they did or not, I can't prove to you, but they could have written the book of Hebrews. And then if you look at um, 1 Corinthians 16, we were in 1 Corinthians, and if you look at verse uh, 19, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, it says, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca, that's Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So they not only had a church in their house in Rome later on, but they had a church in their house in Ephesus. They were the leaders of the church in Ephesus at the time that uh, Corinthians is being written. Okay, So these people are very experienced leaders of the church, very important to Paul. They come back to Rome later. They're held in highest regard by Paul. And Paul tells Timothy 
that when he comes to Rome, you can see this in chapter 16 of Romans, where we just were, but I'm not going to open it again. Chapter 16, verses 3 through 5. He tells Timothy that when he comes to Rome, he needs to look them up and he needs to greet them first. Actually, look with me. I, I got that a little confused. Look with me at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 19 of 2 Timothy. And remember, 2 Timothy is Paul's last book. This is written right before he dies, and he expects that he's going to be executed very soon. These are his final words. And he says, Greet, he says to Timothy, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Make every effort, and it goes on, then make every effort to come before winter. And then he talks about it. So he says, When you get to Rome, before you come visit me in prison, I mean, if I was Paul, I'd say, you better make sure you come visit me first. <laughs> he said, when you get to Rome, find Priscilla and Aquila. They'll, they'll facilitate everything else. They are facilitators. They will make this happen. But you go to their house first, and you find them, and you greet them for me because I'm sitting here in prison. Then, you've got a couple of minutes, look at Hebrews. Still talking about who wrote this. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. There's some internal evidence also. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says in verse 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. That's what we already read. And grace be with you all. So whoever the writer of Hebrews is, this person is a very close associate of Paul's ministry team because they're talking about Timothy, right? I mean, this is Paul's inner circle. Apollos wasn't really in Paul's, in Paul's inner circle. They were sort of like, they weren't in competition, but they were sort of like the same thing. So they were doing, they were never in the same place preaching together. Because Apollos was just as smart as Paul. <laughs> they were basically doing the same ministry. So God had them spread out in different, different places, okay? So that's one thing. The, the, the book goes beyond what it seems that Luke was writing in the gospel and Acts, okay? And Luke always ascribes things to himself. Paul always ascribes things to himself. For some reason, the writer of Hebrews did not tell us what their name was, Okay? I've, I've heard some scholars say it was because it was written by Priscilla and it wouldn't have been appropriate to put a woman's name onto it. I don't have any proof of that. That would be possible, but I, I have no idea. Okay? But it, the name is not there. So that doesn't fit Paul's modus operandi at all. It doesn't seem to fit Luke's either. But this is a person who's very close and is in the inner circle. And that does fit the bill for Priscilla and Aquila. They fit in on all points. Okay? And this person calls Timothy our brother. So there's another thing in Hebrews that's interesting. In Hebrews, there's this I and we uh, usage, okay? In some places, the writer is saying I, and in some places, the writer is saying we. And they're not doing the kind of we where they're including you and their we. It's the kind of we's like we are writing to you. So we get the impression that the letter is written by a team of some sort. And there's a main writer, and there's somebody else who's working with this writer. So that also fits in very well with Priscilla and Aquila. And these writers, these people, 
whoever they are, they say Timothy is our brother. Paul never says that. Paul says Timothy is my son. Okay? Paul would not call Timothy our brother. He would call Timothy my son because that's the relationship that he has with Timothy. But these don't have that relationship with Timothy. They have a relationship of equals. That we're, we're brothers. Our brother Timothy, they call him. And they say that he's going to come meet us. This is our plan anyway. We hope this is going to work. And when he gets here, we're going to all come together to Rome. Well, that actually did happen historically. They all end up in Rome later. So that fits in with Priscilla and Aquila also. So that's all that I can give you in relationship to who wrote the book. But in giving that to you, my hope was not just to give you an idea that maybe Priscilla and Aquila wrote the book, but to give you an overall picture of what it meant really to be a Hebrew Christian living in Rome at that time. Because I think as we go through this book, you'll easily find yourself in this book. Because it's the same to be an American Christian who really wants to serve Jesus living in America today. So I'm going to stop right there. If you look at your notes, it talks about the main theme. And I'll just pick up with that next week because I need to explain about the therefores that are in the book. But I'll just start with that next week and then we'll jump right into the first section, which is just the first four verses of Hebrews. So if you need to bolt out of here, bolt out of here, we're going to pray too. Amen. Amen. So let's just stand together and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your, your word this evening. And I just pray that as we boldly approach this book, that may seem quite daunting for many. I know even when I was first called to prepare this teaching, I thought to myself, I've never taught the book of Hebrews before. It's always been a place that I kind of cherry-pick things out of it, Lord. And uh, it, it seemed even a little daunting to me. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into this book, that you make it simple, that you open the ears and the eyes of our understanding to hear what it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church today, and that we would not miss the message that's repeated over and over and over again in this book, Lord, that we can't lose the best that, that we have. We can't lose Jesus. We have to hold on to you. We can lose every single other thing and every single other person, but we cannot lose Jesus. We have to hold on to you and follow you no matter what kind of persecution comes and seek first your kingdom and trust that all these things then will be added unto us, Lord. I just pray you bless us as we spend time together in this book. Bless this evening, Lord. Bless the youth. I pray that just the opportunity for us adults to be together with the youth on the same evening, that just that anointing would increase your work amongst the youth of this church, Lord. I thank you that you're adding to their numbers, that you're gathering them together. I pray that you would send um, those who have a vision to support uh, the, the vision and ministry of this church to work with the youth to help Shaleen and help others, Lord, and that we would always have more than enough, Lord, to raise up this generation in you, Jesus, because honestly, everything we talked about tonight, I guarantee, I know in my heart that all those youth over there, they're feeling more pressure today than even we adults are. And Lord, I pray that you would make them strong in you. And I just bless you and give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. (laughs) 
We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.